All right, so if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. There we read, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off, and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. (coughs) Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Amen. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word, to consider what you have said. We ask you now to bless us, and I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, in this passage, Paul starts off with, I think, one of the most awesome statements in Scripture. Verse 14, For he, referring to Jesus Christ, for he himself is our peace. You know, we often think of peace a lot. We see in the world, you know, where there's wars and conflicts. Uh, we say, oh, which there could be peace. We see people whose hearts are troubled, sometimes by their consciences, because of things they've done. Sometimes because of things they've endured or been afflicted upon them by others. And they have no peace. Their soul has been broken or, sh- or shattered. And so they, they struggle. And so we find peace to be a, a, an elusive thing in the world. Some have no peace simply because they're not interested in God's peace. Uh, Jesus promises peace to all those who come to him. You know, when he says in Matthew 11, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. He promises to give peace to those who do that. Yet the scripture tells us that there are those who have healed the the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, God says to the prophet Jeremiah, and as we saw earlier, he spares no words, or the Lord spares no words when speaking to his people through Jeremiah, letting them know that they had sinned against him and that they were trusting in lies. But he says, for they, referring to false prophets and those who twist God's word, they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Literally, it's shalom, shalom, va'en shalom. Ain means it doesn't exist, it's not there. And so they, they say, oh, you're at peace. You know, we saw, we just read that in the uh, scripture lesson in Jeremiah 23, how the false prophets tell people, oh, you know, everything's fine. They tell the evildoers, oh, you'll have no, no affliction, don't worry, everything's great. And we see this today, not just with the false prophet movement uh, in the uh, neo-apostolic movement where they, you know, claim to speak God's words 
by direct revelation out of their own hearts rather than reflecting what Scripture says, but where they just simply uh, promise people things. But we see it among all evangelicals, you know, people that are doing evil. They go, oh, that's great. God loves you just the way you are. God doesn't love you just the way you are. If you're wicked, you need to repent. You need to turn from your sins. There is a love of God toward his creatures. We acknowledge that. There is the offer of salvation. We realize John 3.16 is in the Bible, and we praise God for it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. We will see considered in weeks past that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God does love us. But when we talk about those who are impenitent, those who are not interested in turning from their sins, those who love their sins more than anything else because they're willing to go to hell so they can continue to practice their wickedness, uh, we see them to tell people that are in that condition when they've heard the gospel and spurned it, turned their backs on it and aren't interested in God, to tell them that they're having peace, that's nothing other than just a flat lie. In uh, Isaiah chapter 48, verse 22, uh, we find that peace has to be on God's terms because God says that the wicked are like the troubled sea that can't rest. He says, there is no peace, says my God, to the wicked, those who are set in their wickedness and not interested in finding God's mercies. And so God rebukes the wicked, and yet here we speak of peace in this passage. There is peace to be had. God offers it to us in his Son, Jesus Christ. And it's not just describing the relationship He's saying that he himself is our peace. The peace that God speaks of is a person. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we look to him, we find peace. As we trust in him, we realize if we're going to define peace, most people say, well, it's a cessation of hostilities, or it's when things are tranquil. Very few people have probably, if you went out on the street, maybe if you ran into a Bible-believing Christian, they might tell you, but if someone says, can you define peace? The answer is yes, Jesus Christ. He is our peace. He is the one that reconciled us to God. That's what Paul talks about. When he talks about uh, he himself is our peace, who has made both one. Now Paul's talking about Jews and Gentiles. The Jewish people were separated from the nations because God chose them. He called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and promised that through that line he would send the Messiah. And God preserved Israel. He gave them promises. And they were truly God's people. And, and, you know, not necessarily all that were born in, in Israel. There were the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, like Esau and some of the others that were born in the covenant line, but they didn't follow through. They didn't really trust in the Lord. They were non-elect, we could also say. But the Gentiles were not God's covenant people. They could come and join Israel, and the many did that. They were referred to sometimes as proselytes. Uh, and you had different, you know, in the New Testament, you find men like Cornelius, who was a proselyte among the, the Roman army, and he worshipped the God of Israel. He had concluded from his knowledge of Scripture and the, the gospel preached in the Old Testament, same gospel we preach today, he learned that the God of Israel was the true God. And so, you know, Gentiles could join with Israel and become you know, part of God's covenant people. But that's how they had to do it. As you know, the controversy in the early church uh, in Acts 15, some from among the, the Jewish believers or professed believers went out and told the Gentiles, according to their understanding, they said, well, you have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses or you cannot be saved. They didn't say it was a good thing to do it. They just said, you're going to go to hell if you don't keep the law. And Paul opposed that. He said, that's not... 
the terms of the gospel now. That's not what God requires. The Gentiles do not have to do that. They ended up having a council in Jerusalem with the apostles and the elders and the, and the brethren there. And when they heard this, they said, no, it's not necessary for the Gentiles to basically uh, conform to the old administration of the Abrahamic covenant. They don't have to be circumcised. And the ceremonial law of Moses, you know, the offerings and all the various things, that's no longer uh, obligatory upon them. And the moral law is always obligatory because they're not going to tell you, yeah, it's okay, now you can go out and commit adultery and murder and lie and steal, etc. So when people say we're not under the law, you have to get it. What do you mean by that? You know, uh, the law can't condemn you because Christ satisfied it. And that's why his righteousness is what saves us. But here Paul says, he himself is our peace because between the Jews and the Gentiles, you had all the ceremonial law that was there. You know, approaching God through sacrifices of lambs and goats and birds sometimes. Uh, certain commandments that were given, clean and unclean things, etc. Well, Christ fulfilled all righteousness by his death on the cross. And that wall that separated the Jews from the Gentiles, Paul's saying it's now gone. God has an elect people among the Jews. He says that in Romans 9, 10, and 11, if you want to go read those chapters. God hasn't thrown away the Jewish people, as some people claim. He has promises to them. You know, there's always a question, well, is the promise of the land part of it? I, I think it is, but uh, I know God has an elect people among the Jewish people, and so we're to treat them with kindness for the elect's sake. And besides that, anti-Semitism and persecution of people because of their race is pretty wicked and stupid, actually. So, uh, But yet we see anti-Semitism raising its ugly head again, you know, uh, yeah, among Gentiles, we see this. You know, I I'm a, was born you know, shortly after World War II ended, and when the knowledge of what had happened during the Holocaust was in front of everybody's thinking. And to be honest, I lived most of my life thinking we would never see anti-Semitism again. We saw from the destruction of Nazi Germany and the exposing of what was going on behind the scenes just how ugly and wicked it is to persecute men, women, and little children because they were Jewish. And I thought we'd never see that again, yet we've seen that that ugly thing, that demon raise its wicked head again in the world. And, and it goes on. And for a lot of Jews are living in fear today in certain areas of the world, including parts of the United States. So we see this, you know, that, that middle wall that was there separating believing Jews and, and Gentiles uh, has been taken away. And that's what he says. For he... Uh, himself is our peace, has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the thing that made them at odds with each other, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So he's not talking about the, the Decalogue, saying that, you know, so now nobody has to, you know, Christ threw out the Decalogue. God, the Holy Spirit, writes the, the Ten Commandments in the hearts of believers. Now, I'm not saying you have to keep the law to be saved, but I'm saying that if you're a saved person, the Holy Spirit's going to sanctify you by putting God's word in your heart and mind, and you're going to want to serve God. Paul says in Romans 7, where he talks about his struggle against sin, he says, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. He said, but I see another principle in my flesh that wars against the, the law of my, of my mind, bringing me into captivity. And then, you know, he says, who can deliver me from this body of death? And he says, I thank God through Christ Jesus. In other words, there's, there's, there's hope. But the point is, is that uh, Christians delight in the law of God after the inward person. We, you know, we thank God for the Ten Commandments. We don't say, oh, I wish the law was gone. We say, oh, Lord, I wish I 
really was in conformity to your life. I wish I loved you with all my heart, mind, soul, body, and strength. And I wish I loved my neighbor perfectly as myself. Because remember Jesus in Matthew 22 said, that's the sum of all the commandments. Christians don't have a problem with that. We're at peace with God. We're at peace with the law. The law has stamped on it where your name is found. It says paid in full. And it's that if you look at the stamp, it's with the blood of Jesus Christ. That's an illustration, but you get the point. That Jesus Christ satisfied all the law on our behalf. Well, he, he took away the ceremonial law, the thing that separated Jews and Gentiles, that was contained in ordinances. When he died on the cross, he fulfilled all righteousness. He's the reality that all those ordinances in the Old Testament, the ceremonies, the sacrifices, they all pointed to him. And he fulfilled all righteousness. And so that has been taken away. So as to create in himself one new man from the two. So it's no longer Jew and Gentile, it's Christian. That's what he's saying here. So he's reconciled. You know, God was with his, his people, his covenant people. When he removed the, the wall of separation, he's not saying, well, the Jews were outside of God also. They were not in a relationship with him. Many of them weren't because of unbelief. But the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, they were God's people. They were the church. And then God removed the middle wall that separated Jews and Gentiles, and he's made a new man, that is a new person, a new body, and that's, that's the church, uh, as he talks about toward the end of this chapter. And he says that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. Now that's the body of Christ first and foremost, his incarnation, but also the body of Christ is a term that's used to describe the church. But he's reconciled both, that is, both Jews and Gentiles. If anyone's going to be saved, it's going to be because of Jesus Christ. It's not because they're Jewish and follow certain ceremonies. It's not going to be because they're Gentiles and don't follow certain ceremonies. It's going to be because they have come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the one that reconciles. No, it doesn't say that they reconciled themselves. He did it for us. Christ took our sins upon himself, died in our place, and now because of his sacrifice that the Father was pleased to accept, the payment that we owed to God, Jesus paid. And so now God has accepted that, and so we can go free. We're forgiven. The debt is paid. That's what he's saying here. He's reconciled them both to God in one body through the cross. So where did this happen? At the cross. When Christ died, that's when this was accomplished. Thereby putting to death the enmity. The Old Testament ceremonies and ordinances died when Christ died. He fulfilled all righteousness. Every sacrifice, every ceremony of the Old Testament pointed to the finished work of Christ. And when he finished the work, those were done away with when he died. Remember what he said right before he died? It is finished. And the Greek is really clear. It stands finished. We don't have to add to his work. That's why I works gospel. People say, well, Jesus did everything he could do, but now it's up to you. You have to do some things. That's not just blasphemous. That's basically a false gospel. And Paul said, the curse of God rests on those who preach false gospels. Jesus did everything he could do, period. That's what saves you. What did you do? You became the object of his saving grace. You're passive in your salvation. Now, once the Holy Spirit comes to you and regenerates your heart, you're not neutral. You know, as we just saw in chapter 2 earlier, you know, he's ordained good works for you to walk in. He's made us alive. He's filled our hearts with praise. You know, we thank God. We talk about the Holy Spirit writing God's law in our hearts. God writes his word in our hearts and minds so that we can praise him and thank him. He's at work in us, and we're now alive spiritually, and it's wonderful. 
And so he's saying here that this new man has been reconciled through the death of Christ. Christ slew the enmity that existed between Jews and Gentiles, and between Gentiles and the God of Israel. That's what he's saying here. It's not just between Jews and Gentiles, it's between Gentiles and Israel and the God of Israel. That wall's been lifted. We're now at peace, and Christ has now called us to be his church, as he told Peter, upon this rock, that is Peter's confession, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I love that, because gates are defensive uh, mechanisms, you know, gates are on cities, they're not offensive. You know, you don't, okay, well, we're going to take the gates and go meet the enemy. The gates are the defensive thing. Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, meaning we'll be able to kick in the gates of hell, the kingdom of darkness, and bring out God's elect through the preaching of the gospel. We don't know who the elect are. We preach to everybody. We tell them, hey, we have good news. God offers salvation to sinners if you'll repent and believe upon him and trust him. And we trust the Holy Spirit to affect that in those whom it pleases them to do so. We don't argue with God. We know not everyone's going to be saved. We're sorry about that. But we also recognize God will be glorified both in the salvation of his elect and in the damnation of the reprobate. His justice will be glorified in the one, his mercy in the other. That's God's plan. It's in Romans chapters uh, 9, 10, and 11. Very clear. But here Paul's talking about reconciliation. And he says, he, uh, he put to death the enmity in his body. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off. That is, you Gentiles. He, t you, he came through the apostles, but he came and preached peace. You know, when the gospel's preached, preached correctly, it's God himself that's speaking to sinners. You know, I'm not so foolish as, you know, we just read a chapter about false prophets. I'm not going to get up here and claim that, oh, yes, my word is the word of God. But when I proclaim the gospel that's in the Bible, what I'm telling you is from God. It's not optional whether or not you receive it. Your duty is to check the scriptures like the Bereans and make sure that what I'm telling you is what's actually in the Bible, okay? And any preacher that's worth his salt is going to tell the folks listening to him, read your Bibles. That way, if I get off on something, it won't mess you up. And But if I'm right, you'll receive it. The worst thing that can happen is to have a congregation that doesn't read their Bibles. So when you get off, they just say, oh, that's great. you know. And when you're actually preaching the truth, they're like, nah, I don't know, I'm not sure. Uh, so you want to have the Word of God permeating your thinking so that when you are listening to the gospel being preached or taught, you can discern as you're hearing, oh, that, that's according to Scripture. Okay, Lord, give me grace to really... Uh, see that implemented in my life. Please work in my life and bring this about for me. And if the preacher's a little off, you can go, well, Lord, help him, we pray. And, uh, you know, thank you for your word. It tells us the truth always. The, the word of God written is the standard by which we measure all things. And it has to be that. Otherwise, we'll be led astray in the error of the wicked through false prophets and just our own deception uh, from our own hearts. But Christ came and preached peace, he says, to you who were far off, and to those who were near. Uh, there's not two plans of salvation. Anyone, Jew or Gentile, if they're going to be saved, it has to be through Jesus Christ. There's not a plan of salvation for the Jews and another one for the Gentiles. Paul repudiates that right here and very clearly says uh, it's through him. For through him, verse 18, we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Through him. There's no other way to access the Father by the Spirit except through Jesus Christ. Very important to remember, but also something to be thankful for. By the Spirit working in us, the God, the Holy Spirit, who's given to us to work within us, who persuades us, who influences us, 
who helps us deal with sometimes bad attitudes and unbelief. God the Holy Spirit is the one who leads us and brings this about in us. Remember Jesus said, no man can come to the Father except by me. Jesus is the one that has to bring us to the Father. He also said, no man can come to me except the Father who has sent me draws him. Well, how does he do that? By his Spirit working through the Gospel, by the Word preached and taught and read. So God is the one that does this through him. When you go to God, when you pray, you're going to him through the mediatorial office of your high priest in heaven. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, who is both God and man. As to his humanity, he is a priest, a high priest forever, the high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. He is alive today, so he doesn't need a successor. This is why we repudiate the, the claims of the Bishop of Rome, that he is the Pontifex Maximus. That means the highest priest. That's an old title the Roman emperors used to take, because if you started your own religion in the Roman Empire... You could pretty much believe and practice anything you wanted to, as long as you said the emperor is our pontifex maximus. He's the head of our new religion. Then they go, oh, okay, fine. Here they'd stamp the paper and say, you're, you're religio licita. You're, you're a, a lawful religion. But you had Christians going along saying, uh, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is high priest. That's where the persecutions began. And they weren't persecuted for being Christians. They were persecuted under the charge of treason because they were unfaithful to the emperor's claims. Uh, and they wouldn't say Caesar is Lord, because that was understood by the Romans to be a, a term for deity. They would say Jesus is Lord. And so the persecutions began for them. But they stood their ground for Christ, and they, there was a lot of bloodshed. But later on, during the Middle Ages, when the Bishop of Rome began to usurp to himself certain prerogatives, um, and claim that he was the, the head of the church on earth, and that he was Pontifex Maximus, took titles absolutely blasphemous, allows himself to be called the Most Holy Father. That's a title for God in John 17. Jesus addressed the Father in heaven by the term Holy Father. For a man to take that term to himself is horrible. But they tried, basically what happened in the Middle Ages, everything that was destroyed by Christ's death, they tried to set back up. The Mass became the sacrifice. The pastor became a priest who supposedly can mediate the forgiveness of sins and the confessional. Uh, and, you know, the, the Mass supposedly, if you, every time you sin, you, you repeat it over and over again, just like the Old Testament daily sacrifices. And then the Bishop of Rome claimed to be the high priest. We don't need any of that. Our high priest is alive today. Our high priest is Jesus Christ. He's not dead. He does not need a successor. He rules from heaven through the Spirit and by His Word in the hearts of his people. And as far as the priesthood, every true believer is a priest before God. John says this in Revelation chapter 1. He has made us a kingdom of priests, or uh, as it says, he has made us kings and priests unto his God and Father. So Christ has a priesthood. It's you. You're to minister in, in thanksgiving and offer the sacrifice of praise now. Christ offered these sacrifices. So we've been reconciled to God. And through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So when you come to God, it's through your mediator, Jesus Christ, is by the work of the Spirit in your heart. And so when you come to the Father, he receives you. God hears your prayers. Sometimes you may not be aware of it, but that's where faith comes in. We walk by faith, not by sight. And you know, you know often it's pointed out, sometimes he always answers our prayers, but sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes it's not yet. Sometimes it's yes. 
So we'd have to trust him and continue to persevere in prayer. But prayer isn't just for asking for things. Prayer is to give thanks to God and to worship him and to uh, you know, confess him. So, <laughs> Probably my car warranty needs to be renewed or something. So, sorry. I actually thought I, I thought, I need to shut my phone off before I, then I thought, oh, I think I already did. Apparently I hadn't. Okay. Where were we? Ah, yes, here we are. We were in the courts of heaven, so let's get back there. So we have access to God through our mediator and high priest, Jesus Christ. He's your high priest. You can go to him. You sin, go to your high priest. He's the one that offered the sacrifice. His blood can still cleanse. It says that in 1 John. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ. His Son cleanses us, is cleansing us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We go to Jesus. You don't need a confessional with a man in it. Remember the, the paralytic? They lowered him down. Jesus said, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And the Pharisees grumbled and griped. I've talked about this before. Uh, and they said, Who is this man that forgives sins? Nobody can forgive sins but God only. And Jesus asked them, He said, Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise, get up out of your bed and walk? They're both equally easy to say. Anybody can say your sins are forgiven. They can say peace, peace when there is no peace. All right. Anybody can say your sins are forgiven. The priest in a confessional can tell someone who's on their way to hell, oh, your sins are forgiven. I've had to deal with people that were involved in some pretty bad stuff in their life. And one, one thing, I won't get into the details, but I was like, you guys need to repent. You can't be doing this. And they said, oh, well, we had a, 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 a priest absolve us and said it was okay to continue doing this. It's like you can't do this stuff. It was a real serious moral lapse. Anybody can say your sins are forgiven. That doesn't mean they are. But then Jesus told him, he said, just so you know, the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He says to the young man, get up out of your bed. Take up your bed and walk. Boom. His legs grew back. He was healthy. Or when I say grew back, they were restored. I'm talking about that there was entropy. Um, they grew back and he was able to walk out. Jesus was letting us know when he says something, it happens. When Jesus Christ forgives your sins, you're forgiven. So you go to him your conscience is troubled, your heart's heavy because of things you've done, sometimes, you know, you get older, you remember things you did in your youth, and you have to pray like David said, and said, oh Lord, remember not against me the sins of my youth. Young people need to remember that. Things you do now can haunt you for a long time, so ask God to keep you from sin. Walk holy in your life. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Uh, but, you know, when you're young, your conscience can still trouble you. When you're old, your conscience can trouble you for a lot of reasons. Go to Jesus Christ. He is our peace. He himself is our peace. Because he's the one that reconciles us to God. He's the one that forgives us. He's the one that can cleanse our conscience. He's the one that by the Holy Spirit assures us of our acceptance before God. Because of what Jesus did for us. He died and he rose again from the dead. Uh, these wonderful truths that are in the gospel. He's the one that's reconciled us to God. Through him, the one who is our peace. We both, that is Jews and Gentiles, whatever your background is, we have uh, access by one Spirit to the Father. It's the Holy Spirit that brings us to God. So these things can be done. So when you go to God and ask for forgiveness, you go by Jesus Christ. You go through Him and you give Him thanks. Then He says in verse 19, because of this truth, He says, Now therefore you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. There are no second class citizens in the kingdom of God. Now, I have to address one thing here, because we have in our current time 
what's often referred to as the Messianic movement, all right? There are Jewish Christians, all right? And we thank God for that. There are brothers and sisters in Christ. But there are a lot of Gentiles who are saying, well, you know, we need to keep the ceremonial law. You know, we, we can't eat, we dare not eat pork. We have to do all the things in the Mosaic law. And it, it's a big movement, and it's got a lot of followers, and it's wrong right at its core. And by the way, those people that are really into that, they don't have too many good things to say about the Apostle Paul. They uh, bifurcate their Bibles, and they say, well, you know, Paul kind of went astray. Really, you're going to condemn Scripture so that you can practice your Jewish rituals? I'll stick with Scripture. Okay, My Bible tells me that there's not two citizenships in the kingdom of God. There's not second-class Gentiles and then Jews that God really loves. Okay, uh, God loves the Jewish people. Those that are his elect ones among them, they're his beloved ones among the Gentiles. It's exactly the same. The middle wall's been done away with. We've been reconciled. God has called his people through his son, Jesus Christ. The name now is not Jew or Gentile. The name for God's people now is Christian. And that we find that the Christians were first called that, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. I've heard some people say, like, well, that was a term of derision that their enemies put upon them. Uh-uh. Look it up in your Strong's Concordance. When it says they were called, the Greek word means by a divine oracle. Okay, that means from God's own mouth. Christians were, by God, called, or the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And, and Peter says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him glorify God on that behalf. It's not a term to be despised or rejected. God has called us through Jesus Christ. But now, look, he's saying, you Gentiles in Ephesus, you're no longer strangers. God has accepted you. You're part of his people. There's no second-class citizens. You're no longer strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're part of God's family now. That's what he's telling him. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole uh, building being fitted together. And I love this. this in the Greek, the word fitted together, it has the word harmony in, in the middle, the root of this word. Harmoniously fitted together. Paul has a picture here of everybody getting along, you might say, in the church. Everybody loving each other and not looking like, well, you're not of my social standing or you're not in my, or you're not part of my ethnic background or you know, you look a little different from none of that. You know, we're all one in Christ Jesus. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. Paul said, and we're to receive each other in Christ. I love it in the Lord's Supper when it says uh, we're to wait for one another. You know, and it actually has the idea of receiving one another. Uh, we're brothers and sisters, and we need to recognize that and not allow the enemy, because the devil loves to make divisions among Christians. I actually heard a, a pastor tell me years ago that he saw a church actually fall apart and divide because of the, uh, I think it had to do with the color of the toaster that had been bought for the church kitchen. But somehow that, that was the wedge that started things, and they started arguing about it, and people got mad, and, you know, and they, oh, I never liked it to begin with kind of stuff, you know. Um, pretty, pretty sad stuff. We're, that's not to be any part of God's people. We're, we're to love each other and not let little trivial things divide us, okay? And actually, if we're in Christ, you know, major things, you know, they may sometimes need to be dealt with, but we should be praying for each other. Paul said, if any man's overtaken in a fault... You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. He doesn't say just throw them away. You know, if one of you stumbles, make sure the rest of you 
kick them until they can't get up again or throw them away. Christians do that sometimes, not supposed to. We're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being li- actually literally harmoniously fitted together, that it, it just fits perfectly. Those of you who do construction, you know, sometimes things don't get cut right, whether it's a stone or a board, or if you're just doing projects around the house, most of us not, or you're trying to build, a, you know, I remember when I was a kid, I'd build models and stuff, sometimes it just wouldn't fit if you're making a puzzle, and it just, Pretty soon you realize this isn't the right piece, or I've got it turned wrong. If you're building, it's like, oh, this isn't going to work. You have to redo it or try to fix it. But isn't it nice when it's done correctly and it just fits? Like, oh, that's so nice. And you're trying to build something. If you've ever been to IKEA, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and it just everything fits together perfectly. Well, that's the way the church is supposed to function, and that only happens, be, you know, because. God puts his love in our hearts for each other. When you don't have that, that oil of the Holy Spirit, a lot of friction can happen, and that's sad. So we need to say, Lord, fill us with your Spirit. Help us to love each other. We're to grow. And note how it's, it's about growth, being uh, harmoniously fitted together. It grows into a holy temple. That's that shrine, naos is the word there, uh, into a holy temple in the Lord. The temple is where God's presence was manifested. That's what he's talking about the church. He's talking to a local church in Ephesus. He's telling them, you grow together, harmoniously fitted together as brothers and sisters in a community of faith and loving the Lord and loving each other. And you're growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together. Note, for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. He said, God's doing this, reconciling Jews and Gentiles in Jesus Christ to himself through faith, because of what Jesus has done, so that he can dwell among us and we can know his power and his grace in our lives. And wow, it's like, Lord, I'd like to see this. I'd like to see a whole lot more of this in my life and in the lives of your church, both here at Grace Pres and wherever your people are gathered in truth, Lord. So please bring this about. Help us to love each other and establish us, Lord, as, as a church according to your good pleasure. So, amen. So we have a goal in front of us. We have things we go, oh, okay, well, I could maybe be praying about that. Yeah. It says if we pray according to his will, he hears us. Well, you know what he wants. So if you ask for these things, you're praying according to his will. And you can trust him he's going to do it. So come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, whatever it is, he's your high priest. He loves you. He's reconciled you to the Father through his own uh, precious shed blood for us. So we have a lot to hope for. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that it's true. We thank you for this wonderful passage in Scripture that teaches us, Lord Jesus, concerning your work and what you did for us, that you've reconciled us to yourself, whether we are of Jewish descent or Gentile. We thank you, Lord, you've made us one new body, even your church, Lord. So we thank you for that. Help us to love others. Uh, Help us to not have any prejudice or, or racism or those ugly things, Lord, that are so prevalent in this world. But we pray you give us uh, the grace to love others, Lord, uh, and to love you, Lord, above all else. And we pray you fulfill your word in our hearts and minds. Help us, Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask, Heavenly Father, all these things in Jesus Christ's name, thanking you and praising you for this work of grace you've begun and that you will finish. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I believe we have a closing hymn to sing. So. Talk about coming to God's throne.
before the throne of God above. Ask him to get off the